0: Success. With oh, a golden slipper. Oh, them golden slippers. Oh, them golden slippers.
1: I'm ready. Good morning, everyone. It's loud and clear. <laughs> I'm gonna start us off with prayer, always a good way to start. This is one from the Book of Common Prayer uh, for the conservation of natural resources. You might not have known that back in the 800 pages of your Book of Common Prayer, there's some special prayers like this one. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, in giving us dominion over things on earth, you made us fellow workers in your creation give us wisdom and reverence so to use the resources of nature that no one may suffer from our abuse of them and that generations yet to come may continue to praise you for your bounty through jesus christ our lord amen amen i'll
2: pass the microphone to you karen Thank you all for coming today. Um, My name is Karen Abrams. I am the chair of St. Columba's Environment Committee. If you don't know about the Environment Committee, go check out the St. C's website on the Environment Committee tab. Um, We are focused on creation care, so thank you for that prayer, Adeline, and climate justice. Just wanna put a quick plug in for an upcoming event. On Mother's Day, May 14, we will have our annual plant sale spearheaded by our very own Henry Beale. Proceeds from the plant sale uh, go to sustainable villages Honduras because the communities most vulnerable and least resourced to combat the effects of climate change are the ones who are um, actually the least resourced. I kind of repeated myself there. But anyway, that's the connection. Um, And we're so glad to have Bob join us today because Bob has been a leader for many, many years in exactly this area around climate change, racial justice. Um, He is the president of the Rachel Carson Council. And um, we are very excited to hear about what Bob's thoughts are about where we fit into this picture today. Um, And Bob will have books um, available for sale. At, um, at the table outside um, in the commons. So Bob, thank you. And I'm not gonna hand you the mic because you should be- I
0: should have the rock star thing going here. Can you hear me okay back there? All right. <clears throat> First thing I like <clears throat> to do is clear my throat and make you all cover your ears. Um, I have found over the years, uh, the good old pen and paper works very well for having you commit your lives as I speak to the Rachel Carson Council. This is a sign-up sheet for our materials, e-activist lists, many, many newsletters, action alerts, information, news, etc. If you are interested, and only if you are interested, we just pass this around. You can get up and wander around because I'm going to. But that would be extremely helpful and you will be linked to many, 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 many thousands of people around the country who share our interests at St. Columba and the Environment Committee. I wanted to thank Karen and her predecessor Chris. You also are obviously in good hands. Uh, You all, I think, look at Reed Detchen's amazing one-man epistle that covers everything, so I'm going to stop now. You've heard... (laughs) You've heard Reed, I don't think you need much more. It is, he covers from local to international and back with resources and so on, it's just amazing. I'm not gonna try to do that so much um, because I have a limited amount of time for us to talk, for me to talk and get out of here, one. And two, the Rachel Carson Council tends to focus on the United States and mostly, not entirely, on the East Coast. So I want to uh, do that. But first, I should also admit I'm a little bit nervous when I talk in churches. Um, Mixing Christian, am I going to get the right verse? Am I going to quote Jesus correctly? I mean, this is a true fear I have. I was speaking at a Baptist college in North Carolina And it was a day not unlike this. It was pouring rain. It had been pouring for days. It called up images of biblical floods and the last days and climate change. So I was holding forth, as it turns out, in a chapel, a Baptist chapel. And so I, of course, said, oh, well, you know, uh, in Noah's Ark, God promised he would not destroy the world. But that depends on what we do in faithfully following the promises, the commitments, the actions that God has called upon us to do. Otherwise, there could maybe still be trouble. And being uh, connected to many strong feminists in my family, I said, well, you know, there's Noah. And I said, but they never give any credit to Mrs. Noah. She was on the ark. And I said, unfortunately, we don't know Mrs. Noah's name. In the back, I can see a stern-looking fellow, and my friend who invited me, who was actually a professor of philosophy and religion, said, look out, there are trustees, there's conservative people all over, and this guy is in the back, he's looking at me. I finished my talk, and I'm like, oh, God, sweating. Him barreling up to me, stands right in front of me, he says, you know, we do know Mrs. Noah's name. I said, oh, says, yes, it is Joan of Arc, <laughs> and I like, and I, I did a little, you know, like, thank you, Jesus, thank you, like, whew, I escaped on that one. Uh, but. I try to imagine, and again, here I'm going to wander into biblical territory that I'm not really fully qualified to deal with, but obviously Noah and Joan (laughs) and Shem and Ham and Japheth and the other wives are busy gathering all of the species. They are dealing with endangered species, a flood of biblical proportions. Can you imagine the care and concern and awe and wonder and surprise they're going around and you're like i don't know is that a salamander well bring it on bring it in here discovering each and every species caring for them making sure there is room on the ark that there is food that there is oxygen and water all of that is an incredible what we would now call act of saving biodiversity preventing the extinction of species but underneath it i think is really the response to this call from God that people interpret in many, many ways that's basically about a couple of things. Love, walking in, uh, God's love. It's also, uh, it reflects, I think, the key fundamental environmental texts in the Bible. And this is where I'm really going to lose, but it's not about rushing waters, it's not about all… The key environmental texts, in my view, are about love thy neighbor, and when Jesus says, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, the least of these, you have done it unto me. And the least of these on the ark and in our time are the other. Think of the strange beasts and odd and wildebeests and news and giraffes and whatever going on that ark. They're different than us, but they deserve the same kind of care and concern. And when we have dominion, it means really to care for them, not just us. This is um, pretty well reflected in Rachel Carson's ethos. I should quickly tell you that Rachel was a pretty weak church grow- goer. However, her dad, I'm sorry, her grandfather was a learned Presbyterian minister, and his daughter, Maria McLean Carson, was this brilliant, brilliant woman who soaked up all of the values of her father, the learned Presbyterian minister. She, of course, could not be a minister. Um, but she was at the top of her class at a women's female seminary. They allowed her to take a few courses at the adjacent Washington College in Pennsylvania. She was that good. She became a teacher briefly, and in those days, if you got married, you had to stop. Not pregnant, not anything else. And so she poured all of those values that funneled through the generations, through the ages, from the rainbow, and the Ark through her grandfather, mother, into Rachel Carson, in which she's known to say things like, if you love something, you are less likely to destroy it. We will not destroy that that we love. And so for her, loving the other, showing empathy and concern is central to her ethic and to what happens in the rachel carson council and what some of we do that you can hear that you can be involved in and that we are involved with the thousands of people around the around the country and so uh rachel's first book and i cannot sell it to you because i am late in getting out a new edition of under the sea wind Her first book that you have not heard of, and if you don't know who Rachel Carson, I'm used to talking to undergraduates and I tell Rachel Carson jokes at this point, but not now. Her first book, Under the Sea Wind, is an arc of itself. It is a naming and caring and involving with creatures above, near, and under the ocean, under the sea wind. And it is a brilliant portrayal of everything from ghost crabs to black skimmers on the shore, and finally we are under the water. Humans are only off to the side as dangerous creatures with trawlers and nets trying to kill our heroes who turn out to be Scomber the mackerel and Anguilla the eel. These are the heroes of this book, and so when a net comes down and Scomber is strangling in a human net that's trying to get him, he's gonna gonna choke and die. You're like, oh no, oh no, Scomber, he gets away. But same thing with Anguilla the eel. The point of this is if you can feel empathy and love and concern for a mackerel or an eel, you have a deep understanding of caring for the other and that of course extends to people who are different and far from us and far away and rachel carson was deeply concerned about that most people do not know that she was an early proponent of in effect environmental justice it wasn't called that she didn't call it but if you read silent spring her great expose of the chemical companies spreading ddt and other chemicals across the land People sort of remember it was about the robins, and there's something about that. She talks about the farm workers in California being exposed to this stuff and her concern for them. She never got to see them. She felt and imagined and read and brought that deep concern. Same thing she writes about nuclear fallout. These are the biblical times she lived in burning rivers, chemicals sprayed across the country, nuclear weapons exploding in the atmosphere. So she wrote a new preface to her great bestseller, The Sea Around Us, that attacks, I guess that's the right word, the nuclear testing of the United States, what happens when the fallout, which our government at the time was saying, doesn't hurt anybody, doesn't go in, don't worry about fallout. She wrote very carefully how it went into the water, bioaccumulated, went up into the Arctic, entered into the food and then bloodstream of an Inuit mother nursing her child. You can feel not just the empathy, but the outrage that this innocent woman, who doesn't even know there is nuclear testing, let alone that it's harming her child, is central to the way Rachel looks at things. And then, sort of fun for me, let's keep moving here, uh, she wrote the first exposé of what the EPA calls Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations, or CAFOs. Some of you may call them factory farms. She wrote the introduction to a book called Animal Machines in 1964, in which she went on about how these animals, pigs, were trapped in cages and fed hormones and growth chemicals, how inhumane it was, how that pigs were sentient, caring beings, and that it hurt the consumers, the people who lived nearby, and they, of course, are heavily, as they are today, minorities of various kinds, mostly African Americans and Latinos. Rachel, I think, got this ethic not only from her grandfather, her mother, and a kind of liberal social action Christianity, but also her good friend and literary agent, Marie Rodell, who helped make Silent Spring a bestseller, had helped to convince, get together, and get published, a book by a then, this is 1958, a little-known Baptist preacher named Martin Luther King J.R., stride toward freedom. This is Rachel's best friend. And she did not write about King, but that is the ethos of love and caring and empathy linked things together that she was operating in. And so today, at the Rachel Carson Council, we don't follow the biblical text entirely, but I am fortunate in these times of biblical end-time climate change. Again, with this audience, I don't have to tell you that the evils predicted from climate change, people still talk, some people still talk about it in the future, you know, is here. Large amounts of Antarctica are melting faster than we ever anticipated or the scientists said it could lead to shutting down the southern ocean current. There are fires, floods, all over the place. So how do you have hope? For me, I am blessed to work with a whole set of young people There are many on the, we have 65 campuses we work with, but from there we select each year 30 fellows, Rachel Carson Council Fellows, that we pay to work from their campus on climate change, environmental justice, and related issues. And uh, a couple of quick instances. uh, When we first started this program, We did a great big report called Pork and Pollution. It was about CAFOs in North Carolina. And it was the fellows who did much of the writing. Me and the professional staff came in a little and brushed it up a little, but the fact is, they discovered, were astounded, horrified, that in North Carolina, for example, there are nine million hogs, as many as there are people in North Carolina, but the hogs poop four times as much. It goes into the wastewater. fowls, the air, and the people living there. And you should know that the people living there, near a stinky, huge hog f- industrial farm, hmm, uh, Duke professors. <sighs> no, That was my signal to move along. Uh, <laughs> I think I've offended somebody. Uh, as it turns out, all of these hogs are jammed into two counties in North Carolina, and those two counties, you might guess, are predominantly African-American. And worse, in my opinion, when the Smithfield Corporation came in and started these KFOs in our time, they took the land. Can you guess whose land they took? I'm talking about we worked for a long time with a woman named Elsie Herring, an older black woman of the most majestic, dignified, Presence you can imagine her grandfather bought the land after he was freed after the Civil War and they took it Away from her This happens all over the place if you don't have sufficient deeds or title and so you can see that the history of racism that we're concerned about in this church and that our organization is also concerned with intersects at every point and so our fellows soon are not just writing about the pigs and the poop and the air pollution and climate, but also how did this happen? How can this be and what can we do about it? And the answer always comes back to the history of race and racial depression in this country. And that's why I am so amazed. They do all this work. I just watch them. Um, a couple of examples. I'm thinking right now, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, there's an essay, they're out on the tables there when you go and buy thousands of books and eat the leftover cake and all of that. There they are. And in Charlotte, this essay by two of my fellows begins basically, well, yeah, everyone thinks of Charlotte as well. Modern, big city, 800,000, it's in... uh, 14th largest in the country. And then they quickly say, however, it is last. 50th out of the top 50 large cities in the United States for economic mobility. You are stuck if you're in Charlotte. Most of you have probably been to Charlotte. Banking, glittering downtown towers, A lot of Yankees have moved in. It's considered a vibrant, modern city. They begin to look at the history of racism and how that came to be, and the responses that began in Charlotte with Reverend Ben Chavis, who was there, who began the modern environmental justice movement, along with a couple of other people. And they talk about that, uh, and what we can possibly do about it, and how certain areas of Charlotte or flood more frequently than they've had huge, horrible flooding and other events in Charlotte. Turns out it's always where the poor people are living. Uh, I I, I could go on, I shouldn't go on. I do want to tell you though, about um, a couple of items from my fellows and what they do about it. In uh, Tennessee, that's Tennessee for those of you from the Northeast. I have two fellows at Vanderbilt University, and they say, well, when we came to Vanderbilt, moved to Tennessee, we didn't expect much activism like where we came from in Connecticut and California. (laughs) And they didn't find that much, so they started it. And on the one hand, they started a divestment movement to take the funds from the university that are invested in fossil fuels and move them somewhere else useful. But importantly for our topic here, they looked into what's going on in and around, excuse me, let me give you a direct, uh, in and around the city, they discover once more that there have been racial injustices that There's dumping of waste material and chemicals all in one area, and a black family there has suffered, particularly from this, for over 50 years. The white people living nearby were warned long ago, you should move, it's not safe here. They did not notify or alert the black people there. And so it seems that they turned to the NACP Legal Defense Fund, Natural Resources Defense Council and brought various suits, actions, to try to clean up this place. And when I got to the end of this essay and discovered that this wasn't so sort of statistically racist, it was actually, there are 690 square miles in the county where this is happening. There's one small area where these folks live and everything happens in that one little block where the black people live. It's, uh, and so they are now combining with fellows and others from around the country, taking action, combining the notion and understanding of racial disparities. I have fellows who are documenting, they love to document what the highways have done because they've all been on the highway, as have you and I. Again, Just in Chicago, Karen and I met and went to Northwestern Graduate School. We've been on those highways. I discovered, of course, that they destroyed entire black and Latino neighborhoods I never even knew were there, because I'm driving down the Eisenhower freeway, you know, what do I know? So that white folks can get to the mall out in the burbs. And this is repeated. I just see this pattern, they write about it, and they're working together to try to reach large numbers of people with the issues of combined pollution, that leads to climate change, based in redlining, in zip codes, in racism, and that unless you put those things together, you're probably going to miss some of the problem. And I thought, of course, about St. Columbus, where we are an anti-racist church and an environmental church. But sometimes all of us, I don't mean just St. Columba organizations, divide things up by committees or areas. You work on race, you work on the environment. Never the twain shall meet. And so what we try to do, and I hope you will try to do, is find ways in the work that you're doing in anti-racism, in reparations, involve understanding where the pollution is, who caused it, and who's been fighting it You know, we've had some of the discussions uh, about race here. Should we white folks decide what's going to be done with any money that we happen to raise or hand out or give away? Are there responsible partners out there? Well, as my fellows discovered, they've already been doing this. For decades and decades and decades, nobody knew they were there. They didn't call it the environmental justice movement until 1982, but it had been going on with opposition, lawsuits, attempts to fight this stuff, and seen as one problem. If you find poverty, you will find pollution. If you find pollution, you will find climate change. You will find economic disparities. And they need to be put together and addressed, and when that happens, it's just something miraculous goes on, in which we are the heirs, from Noah onward, and Rachel Carson, to my fellows, who can carry on and try to bend the ark. You know Martin Luther King said the moral arc of the universe bends long, but it bends toward justice. But we would add, it doesn't bend unless we tug on that moral arc, work on that moral arc, pull on that moral arc, and also try to build actual arcs where we gather species, protect them, fight global climate change. And that is when we share those moments that the clergy have all been talking about in their Easter and related sermons in which you yeah, is there a rec- resurrection? Well, this is a pretty modern church. I'm not gonna try to answer that question, but I do know that there are those moments where something is revealed to you, where you feel or see or think something like God is working, and that is what you look for with eels and mackerels and black folks in states you don't even know, in cities you have not been. And so I think at that point, I mentioned that Rachel Carson was really only in the spiritual tradition of all of this. But uh, this photo of Rachel is a kind of iconic one. It was taken by her best friend, colleague, who later after Rachel died in real agony of breast cancer while she was finishing Silent Spring. And she wanted her friends to start a group that would carry on her work. That is the Rachel Carson Council. I am only the third head since 1965. The first man and, well, I'm doing my best. (laughs) But there she is with her good friend, Shirley Briggs. They work together at Fish and Wildlife took this picture, I usually joke with undergraduates, you know, was Rachel Carson alone? Because my theme is, we do not do this alone. We do this in partnership. We work with large numbers of people. If we are only concerned about us or me or our community alone, we're not doing enough because the problems are widespread and national. And they say, oh, she's not alone. She's, someone took the picture. But what I look at this when Rachel was sitting here looking at hawks on Hawk Mountain in Pennsylvania, she was imagining through the eons of time how this came to be. She'd moved on from old arc stories to deeply understanding and involved in evolution, and she believed that those billions of years, and often hundreds of thousands of years for certain species, had led to unique beings that reflected the incredible, incomprehensible majesty and awe and imagination of the universe come down in a hawk or a sandpiper on the beach. And in this case, she's thinking how the limestone she's sitting on is made of from foraminifera in ancient seas that were in Pennsylvania and is connecting up that sweep and she's also looking out at the horizon and I like to think she hears a new generation coming she sees people coming over those hills given her mother and her grandfather she probably says I lift mine eyes unto the hills whence cometh my help and that is what I've, anyhow. Uh, my grandfather was a preacher. We'll get back to this. That understanding is a moment with the universe, with God, with Jesus, however you perceive the ineffable, the undescribable, that is where that all politics is either local or global. The global, unless like Reed Detchen, you used to go to treaty signings, it's hard to do. Locally, you are deeply and wonderfully involved. But what happens at the national and state level and the policies that shape all this have to be done with organizations that you link up to in many ways. I invite you to do that. I invite you now uh, to sing a hymn. (laughs) So let us uh, gather at the river. You may have questions. I know we have limited time. I'm sorry. Uh, As I tell my grandchildren, Nora, Ask me anything. I know everything. And then they say, oh, really? What's pi over three or times... You know, I'm like, well, almost anything.
2: Uh, thanks
1: for being with us today. You uh, spoke about um, the phenomenon of intersectionality, so thinking about, like, environment and race. And you noted a story of a black woman whose land was taken. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that uh, regarding you know, how critical representation is. You know, Thinking of the US Senate today still only has 25 women in it. And that's the highest level it's ever been. Um, and the number of African-American people that have served in the Senate is also embarrassingly low compared to the population percentage. And only two of them, I believe, have been African-American women for short tenures. Short tenures, yes. So I'm curious if you could speak to um, the legacy of Rachel Carson as a woman and how um, she was attacked as a woman and the criticality of representation in offices to continue to fight back against um, the still longstanding discrimination against both uh, people of color as well as women
0: thank you thank you Is this, are we doing oh yeah, I have to do the rock star thing okay so let me try to combine three things at once um, Rachel Carson of course was attacked um, she hadn't finished her PhD because she was caring for her extended family raising and helping to raise kids who had been orphaned and abandoned. And her fellowship at Johns Hopkins, where she was getting her PhD in marine biology, didn't cover all her expenses. She worked half time for two world-class biologists and taught adjunct courses commuting by bus to College Park and in Johns Hopkins. And it was the depression and she couldn't keep going. So when she turned up as a famous writer and wrote Silent Spring, The attacks were, she's not a scientist, she's just a writer. That's just for openers. Then it began to escalate, and so hysterical woman, communist, um, in what was a slur in those days for single women, I would say, that implies they're not quite womanly, she's a spinster. And it goes on. So um, she faced and understood many of that, and and, uh, and in that line we're particularly interested. I just wanted to say about Elsie Herring, the woman whose land had been taken, we were deeply involved uh, in bringing Elsie and others who had been mistreated, land taken, et cetera, to Washington for national conferences, for lobbying, paying, bringing, making central to our work, not the old guy experts. Uh, and Elsie was involved in bringing so-called nuisance suits to try to at least get something and stop this uh, horrible stink. And so in, in relation to the question of representation, very quickly, we thought we were gonna get uh, the ability to have these suits go forward, The representative from her area, a guy named Representative Dixon, who owns a CAFO, took the legislation written by the Smithfield Corporation, brought it to the floor of the North Carolina legislature. I listened to this guy. These are outside agitators. I bring my grandchildren, they don't mind any smell there. This is just all stirred up by people, and I have here a bill written by Smithfield. He didn't say that. So in that representation, you can see clearly a direct link. Smithfield Corporation, a friend of mine was exposing them, teaching at the University of North Carolina, Attack the university, wouldn't defend him in this case. Because Smithfield gives to the athletic program, they're on the board of governors, they are deeply entrenched. And so that pattern repeats itself when we come back, say, to the United States Senate. Uh, Speaking of North Carolina, I happen to be connected to two political action committees not the racial Carson Council because we can't do politics uh, But I go all the way back to Harvey Gantt was a guy who ran for Senate twice He'd been the mayor of Charlotte a brilliant guy a black man and It looked like he could make it and in the last 10 days uh, good old Help me here. Jesse. Thank you, Jesse Holmes. I, I block on certain things, and Jesse Holmes is one of them. Uh, just poured millions of dollars of ads. Racist, totally straight. Harvey lost. The same thing happened in the last election. Um, so, unless there is diversity, different points of views, the other in our Congress, Senate. House, it's very, 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 very difficult to make progress. So, um, we have a lot of my, I should add, most of the fellows I've been talking about are women. Um, And uh, they're as as concerned about political representation as they are about the issues that we've been talking about. But that's something we've, gotta work on that That was too long an answer so try a short question and I'll try a short answer
1: I think this is really short you struck me early on with the fish and the eels in the net
0: and um, I'm just wondering if Rachel Carson was a vegan or whether she just felt that if we were going to eat creatures they needed to be caught and
2: raised more humanely I always
0: fear someone will ask me that question (laughs) she was not. Um, she even was, because she was highly pragmatic, uh, for example, she and her friends who did her public relations, right, Marie Rodell and others, warned her about not being seen as too nutty and extreme, or she would lose the influence that she had. So that included, back then, they thought that the Rodale Institute was Way out there, it's a fairly well-known uh, organic farming operation. Um, so no, she was not a vegan or, or vegetarian. Was, uh, but she t- the logical conclusion that one can draw that because she literally wrote about the suffering of the animals, the pigs included. So it didn't seem to translate, but uh, she made a wonderful case for it.
1: Thank you for your talk. Very interesting. You mentioned about looking to the horizon and the young people, and I'm thinking of my 10-year-old son. I'm wondering if the council does anything to help encourage kids to uh, learn more and be activists at a young age, and what can parents do? Too. So your advice would be very
0: If I were really an honest person, I would say no, (laughs) but more squirmy. Um, Rachel Carson ended up caring for her adopted grandnephew who was orphaned. This is a woman at the time, a middle-aged, never dealt with kids, Um, so she took him in hand and up at her main cottage along the coast, she would take Mm him out and she wrote this, was called a book, it was a very long magazine article, but it's called A Sense of Wonder. You can buy editions, I don't have one, but I mean, on, uh, and it talks about how to engage children, and the important part is not to try to force facts and science and stuff into them, but to explore, as she did with her mother, who was basing it on ideas from women in those days, to develop that sense of awe and imagination and wonder and exploration and careful observation, and that's where you would learn to love. We don't have a program like that. There are, for example, at the former Audubon Natural Society, now Nature Forward. uh, They have wonderful programs like that. We have been talking about possibly finding ways to extend toward high school students, but as it is, we have been growing mightily, and so for us, paying 30 fellows a year, for example, uh, is a lot, and then mentoring, working with them, working on their projects, their writing, et cetera, so we don't quite have the capacity, but we might. But I would recommend local programs, but really get a sense of wonder, no joke. Simple book, it's got photos, and that's where it begins. And I, I can thank my own mother for similar things, taking me out, trompsing around, looking around. How are we doing? Are we done? Yeah, we have so to let good. me ask you before you go, please sign up for the Rachel Carson. If you're, there's some of the essays that I tried to mention from my fellows are just out on the table. I think you'll find them quite amazing and revealing for 20-year-olds doing this stuff that I was doing other things in college at 20 that I cannot mention. But it wasn't the intersectional anti-racist environmental work. So I invite you to do that and we'll see you outside. And then after the service, uh, Karen and I will also be out there as people are exiting or there are other people out there. And, uh, so thank you for having me. I'm still a little nervous about that biblical stuff. and uh, I thought someone would ask me about the curse of Ham do you know the racist conservative inter- because Ham gets a mark on him, and he's cursed, and that is interpreted by Southern fundamentalist, racist Christians, that that's why black people are inferior, literally from that story. Check it out if you don't believe me. But that's why I worry when I wander into <laughs> biblical territory. So thank you all very much. We'll see you outside.